Welcome to What I Did Next from ANT Media. I'm Malak Fuad. This show delves into people's life journeys from the point of view of twists and turns, shifts and pivots. We've all had them. Some are more visible than others and make us stop in our tracks, take note and maybe make a course correction. Other changes along our path only come into focus with hindsight, when we look back and realize a particular moment in time was pivotal in our lives. These are the ideas that form the underlying current of the show. I'm joined today by Ali Shehebi. Ali, who is half Saudi and half Norwegian, wears many hats. He's a businessman, an investor, a scholar, a writer and a pundit. Known to some as the founder of Rasmallah Investment Bank, he's known to others in Middle Eastern business circles as the man who said no to Arif Nakvi, the notorious founder and CEO of Abraj Group, who is now in detention in the UK. A few years ago, Ali left the business world behind to focus on his passion for writing and commentary. He published his first book, Arabian War Games, in 2012, and followed this up with the Saudi Kingdom between the Jihadi Hammer and the Iranian Anvil in 2015. He's also written for media outlets like the New York Times, The Atlantic and Foreign Policy. With his deep understanding of Saudi Arabia, as well as his effortless ease and ability to go between cultures, Ali Shehebi is uniquely placed to explain us to the West and does so with clarity and simplicity. As always, we begin by looking around Ali's fantasy dinner party table to see who he's included. I'd like to include some intelligent political leaders uh, of the past and maybe even some still of the present, but people like uh, King Hussein of Jordan, King Fahad, who was a very intelligent man, Bill Clinton, Jimmy Carter, Tony Blair, people like that where you can really grill them over a dinner uh, about the political realities and where they have the intellect to be able to give you uh, unique, uh, a unique perspective, really. So your list of dinner party companions so far is only men. Have you got any women there? Well, you know, it's in the political space and in history. Uh, so I don't think I have any women there at the moment. Uh, I know that maybe doesn't sound very politically correct, but, you know, maybe my son being interviewed in 50 years or 40 years will, will be able to have uh, politically relevant uh, women on it. But in my world of history and politics, it's been a man's world, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, for the last, you know, particularly in our part of the world for the last 50 years. Yeah. And you would have your dinner party be exclusively a political gathering or would you consider including uh, musicians or or other industries? Well, I think, you know, industry, you get the benefit of memoirs and analysis and books and transparency that you really do not have at the upper echelons of politics, particularly in our part of the world. Uh, right. In America, you have more of it. Obviously, leaders write their memoirs, which are always self-serving, but still interesting. But in our part of the world, people like King Fahad, King Hussein, even Anwar al-Sadat, Hasni Mubarak, you know, people like that, they never write their memoirs and their top people hardly ever write their memoirs, particularly in a country like Saudi Arabia. So uh, that is a, a body of history that simply does not exist. So if you ask me who my uh, favorite dinner companions would be, they would be the people that I would try to, whose brains I would try to pick where there is no other source where you can pick those brains. Why is that not a tradition for us? Because we have, a, we have a tradition of oral history, don't we? As, as, an, as a culture, we have oral history, don't we? That passes from generation to generation. Yes, but, but even oral history is usually Hague, Geography, as they say, it's praise and and it's it's tamjid, as we say in Arabic. You know, it's people who who sing the praises of powerful leaders rather than um, give an accurate rendering of history. So this region lacks uh, a tremendous amount of of knowledge about its recent history or even history for the last hundred years. Mm, so mm. I think that is the the, the the biggest um, uh, impediment to knowledge. Yeah, very interesting. Do you think that there is a potential for that to change? Uh, are people becoming more sort of westernized in that respect? Or is there still resistance to putting things down? A little bit. I think some of the younger generation of leaders uh, realize that 
you know, what Winston Churchill said when the, he was asked, will history be kind to you? He said, it will be kind to me because I'm going to write it. So I think younger, younger leaders uh, realize that yeah. it is in their interest to operate with scholarship because mm -hmm. that scholarship mm -hmm. is going to be written anyway. That's right. And uh, you are better off. Um, you know, opening the kimono at least yeah. a little bit versus ignoring it like was done in the past, you see. Let's go back a little bit to uh, your origins, your education, your childhood, but even before that, your family. You are, um, you are half Saudi and half Norwegian. So tell me a little bit, first of all, how how did your parents meet and and what does that mean for you do you feel more half saudi or more half norwegian or is it a blend or do you are you able to kind of put on these different hats depending on the situation you're in what is it like to be um a, a sort of person of mixed background when the backgrounds are so very different yes i mean the the backgrounds are extremely different my parents met in 1946 uh, in in England, my father actually had gone to university in Cairo at the American University of Cairo, and then he went to Cambridge to do his law degree. And my mother had come after the war from Norway to to study at Edinburgh University, but had gone to Cambridge to study English. There was an English institute there, and they were introduced and fell in love and spent five years engaged as their families got reconciled to to. Um, the idea of it. The strangeness of it. <laughs> and, and, you know, she came to Saudi Arabia in 1950. She came to Jeddah in 1950. And uh, um, she had re read a book by Lawrence, uh, the, not the H. Lawrence, T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, who said that the houses in Jeddah had no glass. So she wrote my father a letter and said, is that true? He told her, absolutely not. Of course not. And then their first house in Jeddah did not have glass, actually. And she reminded him of that until the day she died. But what was the reason why there was no glass? Well, it just it was underdeveloped. It's this basics, you know, the first air conditioning came to to Jeddah, I think, in the, only in the early 50s. Yeah. And my father remembers going to the office of the foreign minister uh, who had the first air conditioning um, uh, unit. And everybody was sitting around in awe and they said, this is like being in Jebel Lebanon, like being in the <laughs> mountains of Lebanon, you know. And how did your mother adjust? You know, I guess when you're young and you're in love, uh, it's an adventure. Uh, but, but, I, but uh, you know, having said that, I'm not a, a advocate of mixed cultural marriages. I think that, that they uh, add a lot of tension to a relationship. And, uh, and I think my mother suffered uh, in that more than my father, because my father was a very strong, domineering man, and it was his world, and it was his rules. And, uh, and she had to adjust. Uh, my father certainly would not have fit in this modern, woke world, let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know how my mother fell in love with that, but she did. Yeah. And uh, uh, she was the one who ultimately paid the price because she had to adjust and, and she had to accommodate. You know, in mixed marriages, there's so many things that you grow up with that are, that are second nature to you. And uh, when in a mixed marriage, these become a source of conflict uh, unnecessarily. And when you were growing up, I mean, she, presumably she particularly imparted things of her own background, her own childhood to you. It must have been quite hard to, to assimilate that growing up in Saudi. Yes. Well, I mean, luckily, uh, by the time I was born, my father was posted to Switzerland as a diplomat. So I was born in Switzerland. And uh, and my father was in was in Europe at that time, so I grew up actually abroad uh, in 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 Europe and in Turkey, where my father was posted. And uh, I only came back to Saudi Arabia when I was, I think, fourteen, to go to to school after the Lebanese civil war uh, made going to boarding school in Lebanon impossible because my father sent me to boarding school in Lebanon to learn Arabic, really. Because, uh, you know, living abroad, we didn't have any Arab schools abroad. And uh, I spoke English at home with my mother. And although I spoke Arabic with my father, he wasn't, he wasn't a father who was um, around a lot. So um, 
I was sent at, at, at the age of eight or nine to, to Lebanon uh, to boarding school to pick up, my, to, to, to learn the Arabic language. And you did not speak Norwegian at home with your mother? No, we spoke English. Uh, again, I think my father set the rules and, and, and he was worried. Uh, he always knew that I would, well, his objective was for me to go back to Saudi Arabia and adjust. So that was his priority. And I used to be sent back to Saudi Arabia in the summers sometimes uh, to get to know, and which worked in a sense because after I graduated from university and I went back to work, I was able to 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 slip into to it reasonably easily. You know, Saudi Arabia is not an easy country. Everything from uh, not just the 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 social environment and constraints, but even wearing Arabic clothes is extremely awkward to you if you haven't done that before. So he had made sure that growing up, I was adjusted to that. But that threw Norway out the window. Really. Yeah, um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, my exposure to Norway was, uh, you know, uh, a few summers and vacations there. And I always joked with my father. I said, also, Norwegian is a pretty useless language. I mean, I said, if you had married a French woman or an Italian woman <laughs> or a Spanish woman, at least I would have picked up, then I could have picked up a useful language. But uh, because also he was a diplomat in Turkey and I picked up Turkish when I was young. And, you know, who, who speaks Turkish? Yeah, absolutely. Except the, Turks. except the Turks. Yeah. It's a pity that I, that I was unable to pick up Spanish or Italian or French. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, every one of them, particularly French, I miss not having um, acquired because there's such a body of interesting history about the region. And absolutely. French. And your wife is Saudi as well, Ali? No, my wife is Palestinian-American. Actually, she's half Palestinian-American, half French. So I she see. also has a, a comp and she grew up in France, actually culturally French. Right, I see, I uh, see. Which she uses when it suits her. I, I accuse her of using an a la carte menu. Yes. <laughs> if you don't mind me asking, you were saying mixed marriages are difficult. Do you consider this a mixed marriage? A little bit, yes, it is, it is, it is. I mean, and, and, and we still have, um, um, you know, uh, disagreements on cultural issues because, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I find myself given the sort of um, strong influence my father had on me. Yeah. Uh, still deeply anchored in many, um, many things that come from our part of the world. Mm -hmm. While my wife, although nominally uh, Palestinian-American, her father and mother divorced when she was young and her stepfather was French from the age of three. So she grew up in France all her life. So her attitude is totally... Um, totally European to things. Yeah. So no, even we have you know, ongoing disagreements about issues of, um, of culture. The biggest yeah. joke I use about my parents always was that a guest would come into town and my father would say, okay, well, we have to invest, invite this person. So my mother would say, okay, I'll prepare tea for him. And he would tell her, have you tea? Not tea, a meal. Our society, you prepare a meal. You don't give tea to people. And know? a very big meal. <laughs> it, it's funny how that's for decades still, it, it couldn't change. Yes, exactly. But you know, Ali, what I've realized is uh, I think the, 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 the attitudes are not just from people who come from different backgrounds. Because, you know, for example, myself, I'm fully Egyptian. My husband is fully Egyptian. But he grew up in Egypt all his life. I didn't. I grew up abroad all my life. And so I come to the table with a very different set of attitudes and outlook than he does. Um, and so there is, there are clashes also in, for example, how we're raising our boys in certain areas. You know, um, there are certain things that I don't have an issue with, but for him are just no go areas completely. And that's a question of, of, you know, where you're raised, what you're exposed to at a young age. I think, um, regardless of, even if you're from the same, you know, technically the same background, you know, very much so. So it's interesting. I th I don't think there's a I don't think there's a blueprint for any of it. You know, it's all it's all uh, a trial and tried and tested. You know, and each each situation is a bit different. I no, think. no, there is no blueprint. But you know, if you're going to offer marriage advice for youth, <laughs> not that they listen to you, but if you <laughs> offer marriage advice, you want to minimize the potential. You know, you want to minimize the areas of friction. Sure. And to the degree that you can, uh, I have a, I have an Iranian-American friend of mine, and I keep on advising him. I say there's so many Iranian-American women 
who share your exact cultural you know background yeah uh, that you should focus on that yeah uh, because it it just helps in so many different ways yeah and, wh- and what is his attitude does he run a mile or does he agree no he agrees but he hasn't made up his mind yet he's not very decisive when it comes to <laughs> After going to boarding school in Lebanon and high school in Saudi Arabia and Switzerland, Ali studied at Princeton University in the U.S. and then went on to gain an MBA from Harvard before returning to Saudi Arabia. He started out working for the Central Bank in Riyadh before kicking off a major career pivot, finding himself in the middle of a key moment in the sector. I joined a group that um, really was leading the first hostile takeover of a bank in Saudi Arabia in history, the first and the last, if I may say that. We haven't had a hostile takeover since. And it was a very exciting period. I was right out of business school. Um, the person who was heading the group uh, uh, was, a, was a gentleman called uh, Fahad bin Khalid, Prince Fahad bin Khalid. Very bright and very gutsy type of, um, of fellow. And he, he was the CEO of one of the major conglomerates in Saudi Arabia uh, called Mawarid. And um, he allowed me to to drive that process, really, of of, of a hostile taker of the uh, over of a bank called Saudi Hollandi Bank. So at a very young age, I found myself chairing the board management committee of that bank and and effectively running it for ten years. That's very interesting, Ali. That at such a young age, you were doing something so uh, dynamic and um, and pioneering. And I and I wonder whether. That kind of set the tone for the rest of your uh, endeavors because you you've never been, to my thinking, someone who has sort of followed the pack. I think you've always sort of, you know, prepared your own course and felt, uh, for example, you know, when you were ready to leave the business world, that you you did leave it and you went on to something that you were interested in at the time and that's that's not easy to do and most people tend to stick with what they know that you know the better the devil you know kind of element well i was i was lucky uh, i was lucky in that sense because uh, fahad bin khalid was a was a very gutsy uh, out of the box thinker in a society that's very conventional i mean we haven't had gutsy out of the box now until prince mohammed bin salman has come yeah but uh, we took on that hostile acquisition, and uh, you know, a few years out of Harvard Business School, I thought I thought I was taking over an, a bank in New York, and I mean, I fired fifty percent of the staff and virtually the whole management of that bank, and it was such a disruptive acquisition. I would never do it the same way in Saudi Arabia again, and I always say I was so lucky that there was no social media in Saudi Arabia at that time because we would have been torn to shreds, because as I said. Nobody did it that aggressively uh, since, and nobody had done it that aggressively then. It was viewed negatively at the time? It was viewed very negatively, and society viewed it very negatively. And uh, we got a, ve- a lot of bad. But again, with you know, the absence of social media and the absence of, of, of even, and media was intimidated in those days, so they didn't cover it. So it didn't get that sort of traction that it would have gotten today. Now, I was lucky because not only was he gutsy, but he had patience because for the first two, three years, the bank suffered, profits fell, market share fell. But that's, we, we sort of did heart surgery on the bank. What years are we talking about here? We're really talking the 90s, 90 to 2000. I see. The first three years, our profits dropped, our market share dropped, our reputation dropped. But then, you know, the heart surgery worked. And we had seven, eight years of 30% annual profit growth. And the bank turned out to be a very high performer. But, uh, you know, even had I worked for a public company, frankly, in America, I would have been fired a year later because uh, not many people would have had the patience to wait three, four years. Um, so it was a very sweet spot. I think I was in, in, in Saudi Arabia before public opinion had an impact through social media. And, and we were a public company in, in markets that were not very deep and where, uh, where the shareholders had patience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I learned that I, would never, I wouldn't do it again like that today if I was going to do it. Yeah. I'd be much more, um, much more uh, I would use a much softer hand than I did then. So it, it, would you consider that to be a pivot for you in the sense of how you wanted to conduct 
yourself in business after that? I mean, it was a lesson, certainly. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, when we had seven, eight years of, of growth and we, we felt we felt that, that, that we had done the right thing. Um, when I look back at it, I think maybe we could have achieved the same objective uh, in a in a more consensual way, in a softer way, for a society that 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 does not accept that. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not mm-hmm. New York, yeah. Um, uh, where 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 you can do this sort of aggressive restructuring on on a you know Saudi Arabia is a, well, particularly in 1990, Riyadh was a very small place and mm-hmm. Jeddah was a very small place. Mm-hmm. You went off and did your own business after that. Then I went off and did my own business. I, I think what 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 uh, it was driven really a bit by by lifestyle because my daughter was in my children were in school in Riyadh, obviously, and then the religious authorities suddenly banned sports for women in schools. And my wife said, "Well, that's it. I'm taking my daughter out of school here." You know, she was nine years old. And we said we can't put her in a school where there are no, you know, sports are not allowed for girls. So my wife said, you know, I'm going to take the kids to Dubai. Then I was commuting between Dubai and Riyadh, and then I decided I would set up my own business. Um, and um, I set up really the first private equity fund focused on the Middle East, on the Gulf region, uh, financial services sector. Deutsche Bank came in as a as a anchor investor, and uh, Prince Fahad, who has been my boss in Mawarid, was an anchor investor. And and we started very early in the game, really. I think, you know, uh, today everybody's talking about venture capital and private equity in the Gulf. We were uh, we were 20 years, uh, in a way, ahead of our time. But it was a very interesting, challenging time. And, uh, and I had a lot of fun and had a lot of uh, challenges doing mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And at the time, you were, you were involved in, in brokering the Aramex deal, weren't you? Well, yes, that's how I got involved with Arif Natvi because... Uh, I was looking, I felt that I had, uh, um, I had, his brother-in-law had worked for me in Riyadh. And uh, uh, so I was aware of him and I thought that I was trying to recruit a deal maker to my team. And and I thought that he would be a superb deal maker. And I, and I went to him and invited him to join me as a partner. Uh, and uh, he had identified uh, Aramex at that time as a potential acquisition target. Uh, but uh, even in those days, he had a little bit of a of a of a uh, gray reputation, and and we uh, with Deutsche Bank, and we were also regulated in London and in America at that time, uh, had I think a very good reputation. Uh, so I thought, well, I said, you know, many of the investment bankers in Goldman Sachs or other investment banks are are, are slippery characters. Also, if I can channel this person's uh, deal-making uh, skills and 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 control the environment. We could we could create a winning team. Uh, so I brought him in uh, on the condition that he runs the deal team and I run controls, financial controls, legal compliance. So I was chairman; he was managing director, and uh, and uh, we did the Aramix transaction. We took it off Nasdaq. It was listed on Nasdaq, and we were able to do that because, as I said. My firm, Rasmala, was licensed in the UK by the FSA and licensed in America by the SEC. And it was very much a legal compliance-driven process, actually. So we had all the building blocks. Uh, and Fadi Randur had been a, a schoolmate of mine in school. You know, Fadi was on, on our show last season. Yes, yes I, I haven't heard it yet. But Fadi had been, Fadi had been a, a schoolmate of mine. So we went ahead and, and uh, did that acquisition. Uh, uh, it's surprising, though, when everybody, when you remember how difficult it was to sell that deal in the region, uh, or even to raise debt for that deal in the region. Now that's but why was that, Ali? Why was that so difficult to do, considering that it had been on Nasdaq? Yes, it, it, you know, it was shocking. We, we, uh, nobody wanted to lend us money for the transaction. In the end, we ended up getting debt uh, through one of my shareholders, Rasmada, who was a shareholder in a Jordanian bank. And and he used his influence to get us that debt, and then uh, that that was the acquisition debt, and then we got another uh, debt to buy that debt out from uh, another of my shareholders. Uh, so I don't know, but you know the market wasn't ready then. Everybody follows 
everybody else. Yeah. And nobody had seen private equity. Nobody had seen companies being taken off NASDAQ. Uh, I think, you know, uh, Aramex also had a controversial reputation in Jordan, uh, really. And uh, that made it also not that easy to do this transaction. So all in all, um, it was not an easy deal, but, but, but uh, it was done and we succeeded in doing it. Uh, but after that transaction, um, I found working with Arif extremely difficult. Uh, I, you know, uh, and I think he found working with me difficult also because, as I said, I kept, you know, the financial controller, the head of compliance, the head of legal, um, and and branding were things that I kept a very very close eye on. And uh, and you know, the book um, I encourage people to read it, The Key Man by yeah, Simon Clark. I read that, and and I read your involvement. In about in that as well, and so at some point you made the decision to walk away, and you you washed your hands of all of this. Yes, and uh, luckily I had kept the email uh, that which the Wall Street Journal saw. Yeah, uh, because you know obviously history people want to try to rewrite history, but I had kept the email where I sent out of uh, the final email, and I said you either change or we separate, and we separated. Uh, and uh, and I continued, uh, you know, with Rasmala alone, and 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 he went on and established a branch. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, it, to me, it's 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 a tragedy because he was a man of such talent, and uh, had I been able to capture that talent, but put in place, which is had been the original model, but put in place the checks and balances to to make sure he does not cross the line, we would have created something uh, really. Uh, yeah. enormously successful but just that oil and water did not make i also think it's a real shame for uh, a company like that to have completely um sort of deceived so many people because in in a very sort of uh, uncomfortable way it confirms what a lot of westerners and a lot of foreigners perceive of the arab or or middle eastern business dealings and I think that that's a real shame yeah. because he had a lot of opportunity to really do something good, and and the you know the PR element that he kept pushing that you know you can make money but do good at the same time was music to their ears. And it's just such a shame that it's it it was just such a con, um, and it's a shame that it sort of confirms for a lot of people Middle East practices. And you know when you when you see it from the perspective, unfortunately. yeah, unfortunately. unfortunately. Ali shares more about Arif Nakvi and Abraj on our members-only bonus episode. You can get this by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or on our website. It's super easy to get started and you'll get a free trial. When we come back, we'll learn how Ali moved on from the business world to writing. That's on the other side of this break. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, actor and comedian Rami Youssef told me about his thoughts on cancel culture, and ex-anchor and now author Hala Gorani told me her thoughts on the future of journalism. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, actor and comedian Rami Youssef told me about his thoughts on cancel culture, and ex-anchor and now author Hala Gorani told me her thoughts on the future of journalism. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Malak Fuad, and you're listening to my conversation with Ali Shahabi on What I Did Next. 
So in the decade that followed, Rasmala diversified beyond their initial investments. We grew it out of private equity into brokerage, into asset management. We acquired actually Naveen Tahari's company in Egypt, one of your previous interviewees. Yes, yes, yes. Delta. Delta, we acquired it. Um, and uh, we opened up in Oman also. Uh, and uh, so it became a regional investment bank and asset management company. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, after we survived the 2008 financial crisis relatively well. And, uh, and then by 2012, I was a bit tired of finance. And um, I felt, uh, you know, I, uh, I wanted to do something else, really. And, and I wanted to go back to my passion, which was history. And I wanted to write a few books. So I just want to pause you there, Ali. At this stage, you are what age? At this stage, I was in my late 40s. And you had been in business for what, about 30 years by then? 25 years, yes. And your children were were already in college, were had got, had already left home. Did you make a, a conscious decision to to step back from business? Or did you originally think, I'll do a bit of writing, I'll explore to see if this hobby of mine can be a full-time uh, shift? Honestly, I got, I got tired of finance. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I spent two years looking uh, for a way to, to, to exit this. Uh, and then, uh, I, you know, I found it. And, and, uh, and then once I did that, I, I moved on, really. And I, and I started to base myself more out of a farm my father had acquired uh, in Portugal. Uh, which I, I inherited and have, have built on, really. And, and, and I sort of, I use that as my base to write. So tell me about the first sort of, when you first moved into the, the idea of writing, how did you think that this would be a good next phase for you? Because presumably you had last done this uh, in undergraduate, as an undergraduate. How did you, what made you think that come focus? Yes, it's very funny. When I was um, uh, at Harvard, I took two, two you are allowed two courses outside the business school. And I took them both in the Middle East Studies Center with a professor there. His name was Nadav Safran. And I remember he reading my papers and telling me, why are you going into business? Why don't you take up a career in writing? And I told him, well, in my part of the world, you know, writing or politics, don't have a great future. I want to. I want to be in business, really, mm. and uh, and uh, that's where you know you can you can make more money. You can do much more. You have much more freedom than becoming a member of a bureaucracy, really. Um, so I always had that passion. I don't remember the exact point that got me writing, but my first book was a novel. Uh, but it was really a a, a novel. Uh, of a of a of a political scenario of a future political scenario, and um, you know it 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 was very it was very funny because also you know you you discover things uh, with your children when we were growing up the world was a very simple place and uh, uh, you know therapy and and educational help and things like that were never available to students even at Harvard and Princeton. But I discovered with my uh, children that I had ADD or attention deficit uh, disorder, which many children have, but many children get medicated for it now. I had never taken any medication for it, but uh, there was a very famous medicine called Ritalin. And mm -hmm. that first summer, I thought, let me try Ritalin because everybody says it's good for people with ADD. And I took Ritalin and I wrote the first draft of my book in a month. That's so, amazing. It was extraordinary. Uh, now, mind you, it, it made me very tense and 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 it was like drinking a hundred cups of coffee a day. Yeah. So I never took it again. Yeah. But uh, but I wrote the first draft in a month, really, and uh, it it was extraordinary. It, I took Ritalin and it made me focus, you know, for 10, 12 hours a day straight. And uh, I was always bad at focus. I was always bad at, at, at attention. Um, and, uh, and that made me, put me, I thought, as a disadvantage in school. I still managed reasonably well, but I think had I had Ritalin in, 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 in university, it would have made my life 
much, much easier. Mm, interesting. I wonder whether if you had been focused, it would have changed your uh, decision about what to study and what to, what to pursue, actually, as a young adult. I wonder. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a very good point. Maybe I would have gone on to do a PhD then. Exactly. You know? uh, because, I, I mean, when I look back at Princeton and Harvard, I look, I, I, I look upon them also a bit as wasted opportunities. Mm-hmm. I, I sometimes say that education is wasted on the young. Yeah. I think that I, I, focused, on, I focused on gaming the system uh, at Princeton and at Harvard to get through with, 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 with a good track record by doing the minimum amount required. <laughs> um, and I think had I, had I not had, had I, had I had more focus, I would have taken a different, uh, different attitude. And, That's very uh, interesting. Tell me about your early writing, Ali. Uh, you, you wrote your novel. What, what was next? Were you writing at this point articles and journals and uh, commentating on the Middle East? I re- yes, all Middle East, really. I mean, that's my interest. Yeah. Um, the Middle East, as I always tell people, has content. If I, was going to, if I was going to write about Norway, the Norwegians, their worst political problems are when the Icelanders come to steal their fish. Yeah. And then you have headlines on Norwegian papers, Norwegian blood pressure goes up. Uh, that's, the, <laughs> that's the extreme the extent of, of it. That, you know. Exactly, exactly. Uh, in our part of the world, you have content coming daily. Absolutely. Of, 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 of you know... High octane content, so you never get bored. Yeah, and I wrote a novel about future war between between the Arabs, uh, between Iran and the Gulf, and between Israel and the Palestinians and the Arabs. Uh, a sort of perfect storm that redraws the map of the Middle East. I want to just change tacks just slightly, Ali, and and talk a little bit about um, the writing that comes out of our region or about our region. Um, you know. We have so many writers in the West talking about the Middle East, and you know there are a lot of well-known commentators. If you're plugged into this world, you'll know a lot of them. Um, the people that write for uh, foreign affairs, even the commentators in many many of the the the, the well-known uh, daily newspapers. Where are the Arab writers? Where are people like yourself? Where are your compatriots? Where are they? Where, where, where is the Arab voice? Where are we making the case for well, our own self? And who are they? I mean, I don't know who they are. We lack two things. Um, and that will only come with time. We lack mature universities that are independent and that have history and political science departments that can write about anything they want. And there isn't a single Arab country, even Lebanon, where you, where you have that. Maybe Lebanon was the only one for a while, but even today, Lebanon, you have to be careful about what you say in certain situations. So uh, if, you go, if you're an Arab student and you're going to go to an Arab university uh, and study political science, you're going to have a very shallow education. The same goes for journalism. Uh, and then if you're going to work in the press, uh, particularly if you're in the political space, you're very, you're very constrained. So we're not manufacturing these people. We will have the odd person that goes abroad, uh, that not only goes abroad and studies abroad, but retains an interest in the region. Because a lot of people who go abroad and study abroad just assimilate. You know, if you're a bio sci- bioengineer or something, you go abroad and then you find a career in America and you stay there. Uh, you know, you have so many brilliant Egyptians uh, that go, that ended up in NASA and everywhere else because that they just forgot, didn't forget about their country, but their 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 area of specialization, America satisfied that. Yeah, uh, the opportunities and, uh, are there. So yeah. we are not manufacturing a an intellectual class yet. That will take time. But Ali, do you think that you're you're saying it's a question of time? Is it inevitable, or does also a civic society have to come from the ground up? I mean, surely it it, it has to be nurtured as a as a as an entity in each country. It, it has to be nurtured from the top down because that's yeah. the way things are being done yeah. in our part of the world. Now, you know, we talk a lot about about freedom and and democracy in the region and i look at saudi arabia which is the country that i focus on and talk about and 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 i tell people in the west that when you they talk about where's democracy and where's freedom in saudi arabia i say that 
Saudi Arabia could not be managed uh, in this part of the world, in the state that it is without authoritarianism. And this, that the changes that took place in the last five years could not have happened if you had had a, a society that was uh, so pluralistic, where you had open elections. And I and I and I uh, challenged them to give me one working model of democracy and pluralism in the Arab world, and there isn't a single one. You see, so I say that yes, there are human rights. And I think, uh, but underdeveloped societies have a sort of Maslow's scale of needs. And your first need is security. And not many Arab countries can even supply that to them. I mean, if you go to Iraq today, basic security is missing. The second need is basic services, utilities, electricity, schools, hospitals. Iraq, again, where the Americans, you know, set up a, a supposedly Jeffersonian democracy cannot offer that. In your mind, Ali, what would what would a U.S.-style democracy look like in the Middle East? What would be the result of that? I think I think it would. Well, we have it in Iraq today, where where what happens was you that there are two factors that end up dominating. One is money, and one is force. And what has happened in in and and it also opens you out up to outside infiltration. Yeah, I mean the Americans worry about Russian influence in the elections. But in some smaller Arab countries, it opens you up to outside infiltration. So, for example, in Iraq or in Lebanon, Iraq has been able, uh, Iran has been able to dominate the political system and also use military coercion. And then it's an incredibly corrupt, both are incredibly corrupt societies. So you go to Saudi Arabia today, which has the same oil reserves, the size that Iraq has, and look at what Saudi Arabia has done with its oil. And look what Saudi Arabia is doing with its oil today. And look at what an average Saudi gets out of it and compare him to an Iraqi, you see, or compare him to a Libyan or compare him to, you know, a Lebanese. If you were going to jump from a parachute from Mars 100 years ago and land in an Arab country, you know, which Arab country would you have been the best, you know, the luckiest to land in? It's actually a country like Saudi Arabia, which has had 100 years of stability and continuity and gradual growth and development because the government, it has been undemocratic and authoritarian, but as a percentage of wealth, of oil wealth that got to the people, yes, there was corruption, yes, there was elites that, that took, you know, that did very, very well, etc. That's, yes, there was privilege, but net-net, a Saudi today is better off by far than an Iraqi or an Iranian or a Venezuelan or a Libyan or a Mexican, and these are, you know, and if you go to Venezuela, it's a country that got a that got oil a hundred years ago, and you know, it was a Western society. It benefited from all the software that Western civilization had available to it, and all the political maturity that the West had acquired over a thousand years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I find it, you know, so simplistic to to to, to talk about democracy in in our region because it. It is premature. Yeah. And we are still very, uh, very influenced by religion. Yeah. I remember an Iraqi politician telling me, he said, you know, if I give a speech, I'm lucky I get a thousand people to listen to me. If a prominent imam gives a speech, he'll have a hundred thousand people in a second listening. Mm. So the misuse of religion, yeah. the tribalism, the regionalism, um, and we see living examples. Again, I don't want to be a theorist, a theorist here. I, I tell, give me an example of something that worked, you know. And we, we have a model. We have a laboratory, which was Iraq, because America came in and did to Iraq what it did to Japan, really. It, it took it over. It appointed a ruler. And then it handed it over to a democracy. It worked in Japan. It didn't work in Iraq. I want to. I want to just shine a light for a moment on Saudi Arabia. I know it's it's your 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 most um, you're you're very authoritative on Saudi Arabia. I have literally just returned from Saudi. I spent a few days in Jeddah. I spent a few days in El Ola. And as you know, and some of my listeners know, I grew up in Saudi. So I spent my very young years there at a very different time from the mid-70s to the mid-80s. And what I saw this time was a very, very dramatic change in 
the infrastructure, the um, the entire, uh, you know, the way the country looks, but on a much more fundamental level, the way Saudis are and how they've changed and how they are outward looking, excited about their country. Um, you know, there are so much positive things going on. But, and I, this is a but, because with all that I saw and with I'm being extremely impressed with what I saw and, you know, it, there's a lot that can be said for what's happening. I wonder whether there will always be a question mark hanging over the current um, uh, push for the future there because of the Khashoggi thing, whether the, the, the Western press are not letting go of this. And I, I don't see how with all that's being done and all the positivity, this perception still lingers. Is it a question of time? Will it just, you know, eventually fizzle out? I don't know, but, you know, it just seems to me that this is still a major issue. And in today's woke world, which seems to be taking over every kind of conversation and uh, has become very dogmatic, this is the focus. How do you explain that, Ali? What is your thought on that? Yeah, I, I'll tell you what, what what is behind that. Unfortunately, the Khashoggi, uh, the crime of killing uh, Jamal, uh, um, took place under the Trump administration. And it became a partisan political issue in America. And the Democrats used it as a tool to attack the Republicans with, actually, and to attack the Trump administration with. So it, it entered the arena as a partisan political issue, which has kept, which gave it much more traction than had it happened under Obama, for example. You see, uh, I don't think Obama would have reacted differently than the way the Trump administration reacted. Ultimately, countries make horrible mistakes, and, and one murder, uh, horrible murder, is not a trend line. Uh, Jamal's murder took place four years ago. Uh, the government from the top to the bottom apologized and recognized that it was a horrible crime. Uh, it's never happened again. So it's not like Russia, which is, has a sort of a, a rather rich track record. You know, you even hear about Russian businessmen falling out of balconies these days. Uh, it's not like Russia. Now, uh, so that, that got a certain amount of life because of domestic political U.S. football. Uh, a very prominent American columnist told me something actually a few months ago, which, which stuck. He said, you know, uh, Deng Xiaoping in China was responsible for, for, was responsible for Tiananmen Square. But after a while, with all that happened in China, when Deng Xiaoping died, nobody, hardly anybody mentioned Tiananmen Square. So time will deal with it and developments will deal with it. Um, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is a controversial player. Um, the, the, the prince is, is undertaking, again, he's doing things going against consensus, uh, going against accepted political wisdom. He is thinking out of the box. He is, uh, he is carrying out shock therapy on many levels that makes a lot of enemies. And, uh, some of them overt, some of them covert. And, uh, uh, Khashoggi, unfortunately, was a was a, was a tool that that is very effective uh, to continue to use. And uh, you know, I mean, I joke about Washington. I mean, I knew Jamal, and I know his family very well. And his uncle is one of my old friends. And in Washington, we used to go out and have dinner together. Uh, after he died, and he was very lonely in Washington, very lonely. That's why he got married to an Egyptian woman in Washington and then got engaged to a Turkish woman six months later in Istanbul. But uh, suddenly, the whole of Washington was Khashoggi's best friend. <laughs> uh, they were all dear old friends of Jamal. I don't think a single one of them invited him to their home for dinner, for example. But literally, you, you will hardly find the talking head today in Washington who doesn't say, Jamal was a dear old friend of mine and I was shattered. So the, the hypocrisy and the political opportunism uh, and the virtue signaling yeah. is alive and well, uh, but time will 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 kill it. What are you working on now? 
Are you working on a new book or are you focusing on articles? I'm not working on a new book. No, I'm focusing on articles and, and focusing on, on, on reading. And, um, you know, I spend time, I, I sit on the advisory board of, of a project in Saudi Arabia called Neon, which is a, it's quite exciting and, and uh, very out of the box, uh, where a, a, a new city is being built in the northwest of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to keep my, my toe, you know, finger in the business world and in the political world. But uh, I don't have a book project at the moment. Uh, maybe a few years into Saudi Arabia's development, I'll write a lot of books. Because the last book I wrote on Saudi Arabia, I wrote really in the last, it came out the week King Abdullah died. Right. And it was a very pessimistic book about Saudi Arabia. And uh, in fact, I didn't go back to Saudi Arabia for a year after it came out because everybody told me, you know, somebody, you know, you, you would be held accountable for this book. Really. Uh, so it was, it was a very critical book. But then I saw Prince Mohammed come along and, and really address the issues that I raised in that book and address them with a, with a speed and aggressiveness and, and determination that blew me away. And I became a great fan of his. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, has he made mistakes? Of course he's made mistakes. You know, uh, pe- you know pe- people come and tell me sometimes, uh, you know, why do you say he's made mistakes? I say, well, the only person who hasn't made mistakes are prophets, really. You know, <laughs> but humans make mistakes. But uh, on on balance, he has in in his five years as effectively CEO of the country has had more has made more change than I can think of any government in my lifetime has made to their country. Um, uh, it's it's really mind blowing, and and I think people people do not appreciate it or understand it or understand the breadth and width of it. Mm. Uh, and the positive impact that it will have on the rest of the Arab and Muslim world. For example, you know, people used to accuse Saudi Arabia of exporting Wahhabism. And, uh, you know, if you are today in Egypt, a, 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 a very ultra-conservative cleric, you don't have Saudi Arabia to hold up as a model yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there was a concert called Middle Beast held in Saudi Arabia a few months ago where 600,000 young people came. Yeah. I mean, uh, what would the conservatives in Egypt say? They must have been horrified. Yeah. And I think like everything to do with history, it's all about hindsight, isn't it? I think if we were to revisit this question in 10 or 15 years, we'll get a better sense of how things pan out, obviously, you know. Uh it's still early of days. Of course, of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, wisdom, wisdom is, 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 is supreme in a rear view mirror. I, I want to thank you, Ali. It was super interesting to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Malak, very much for inviting me. It's been a great pleasure to be on your show. And uh, I look forward to your uh, continuing series of interesting podcasts. Thank you for joining me today. If you've enjoyed listening to today's episode, we have bonus content with Ali for our members coming out next week. You can subscribe on our website or in Apple Podcasts in just a couple of clicks. You'll also get access to our other bonus episodes upon signing up and get our next episode earlier than everyone else. What I Did Next is brought to you from ANT Media. This episode was hosted by me, Malak Fuad, and is co-produced by Shirag Desai. You can follow us for more on our website, Instagram, Twitter, and on LinkedIn. Just search for what I did next. Join us in two weeks' time where we'll have a new guest. See you then.